0: Welcome to Not Your Ordinary Parts, a podcast where we talk about hard things associated with the human experience with the goal of increasing awareness, growth, and healing. You may hear information from professionally licensed therapists, life coaches, healers, doctors, et cetera. This information is not medical advice or therapy and is not meant to replace actual therapy or instructions given by a doctor or personal therapist. I'm your host, Jalon Johnson. My guest today is Dr. Ingrid Clayton dr clayton is a licensed clinical psychologist an author singer a mom a wife a content creator she holds a master's in transpersonal psychology and a phd in clinical psychology as a psychotherapist and writer she is interested in emotional sobriety holistic health and authenticity since 2004 she's been working in diverse clinical settings including inpatient and outpatient dual diagnosis treatment centers for alcoholics addicts and their families ingrid's expertise in addiction has led her to conduct research on spiritual bypass the use of spirituality to avoid dealing with one's reality or emotional experience in 12-step recovery she is the author of recovering spiritually achieving emotional sobriety in your spiritual practice and her memoir believing me healing from narcissistic abuse and complex trauma, which uncovers her personal experience of childhood trauma from a psychologist's perspective. Even though Dr. Clayton is a clinic, has a clinical background, she feels there is no theory, diagnosis, or therapy that can replace the power of shared experience. So Dr. Clayton, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being my guest.
1: Oh my goodness. Thank you for having me. That's the best bio of me I've ever heard. You just like <laughs> grabbed from all the places and put it together. I was like, oh my gosh, it's too much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'm so glad that, that we're here in conversation after having connected on social media for a long time now. This, I'm excited for today. Me
0: too. Me too. And also I gave a brief summary of who you are, um, but so that the audience can get to know you a little bit better. Can you Give us a little bit of background about yourself, please.
1: <laughs> oh, my gosh, that was not a brief, a brief summary. But um <laughs> yeah, I am a psychologist. I'm a trauma therapist. I think, you know, I started really in addiction. And over the years, uh the connection between addiction and, a tra- and trauma became more and more abundantly clear. And I started doing more trauma trainings. And even though I did all these trainings in trauma and I was working with clients who had relational trauma, my own experience of trauma was really still uh, obscured. I was like a lot of trauma survivors where I um, thought it wasn't that bad and I could compare to somebody else and did what I now know is the self gaslighting. And so through a series of events, um, I came to finally see myself as a trauma survivor. And I thought, man, if I had all this information and training, and I'm working in the field every single day, talking about these things every single day, and I still didn't know that I'm living with complex trauma. How many other people are walking around with that experience? And and so I became, really felt called to share not just a clinical understanding, but to put it in a personal story my own, so that if people might see themselves in my experiences, they could also claim the language of trauma and then trauma healing themselves. And so that's where I've been spending a lot of my time in, where you and I met on um, social media, on Instagram and things. I've just became pretty passionate about educating in a way that feels, at least to me, accessible. Because um, even though there's a ton of great stuff out there on trauma, it can be triggering. It can make us dissociate. It's like, I can't really digest it and take it in. Even myself as a clinician, I can just glaze over and I'm like, oh, I didn't get any of that. But if it's told in a funny or irreverent or, you know, short soundbite kind of a way, it's a little more accessible. And then if it's a little more accessible, maybe I can read the caption and that makes me understand a little bit more. And so, um Yeah, I just, I love that about the access and the opportunities that we have now to bring mental health uh, awareness in all these different ways that can reach different people all over the world.
0: I agree. And the way that you share is so different. I mean, you almost, you you, you put your spin on it, your comedy sometimes. And um, I think the relatability too, because like I said, with all of your, accolades and everything that you've done to be able to, you know, see you singing in the shower, talking about trauma <laughs> on some of your posts, <laughs> it makes you relatable. <laughs> it really does. I hope so. It really does. Yeah, no, for sure. It does. Thank you. It does. Um, so your book, believing me, um, you just talked about the the way you try to to make mental health palatable. Um, I I'm sure it took a lot of courage to to write your book. And I wanted to ask you, um, what how do you feel that the book ranked as far as your achievements in your life?
1: That's a great question. It's a little hard to answer because I my immediate impulse is like um most important thing I've ever done. And then I go, Oh, but your son, you know what I mean? Like, oh well, right. um but in terms of the evolution of me and my healing and my becoming more comfortable in my own skin and feeling, um, I feel like writing my own story, just claiming it and, um, kind of going back into these scenes in my own life and giving them color and validation and fleshing out the feelings in a way that I wasn't capable of then. Um, It truly was and is, I think, the most healing and helpful thing I've ever done and terrifying and excruciating mm-hmm. and lonely, like, you know, sitting next to all these other things. But um I am I mean, to say I'm grateful feels like it doesn't do it justice, you know, but that I re- really, truly, truly was um, called what feels like out of the blue to write my own story. Cause I did not want to, I had no intention. This wasn't like a great idea that I had one day. I just was struck with the need to do it. Like it just captured me whole and wouldn't let me go for five years until I put that last period on the page. And I was like, okay, that this is what this is. And I could see for the first time, only after years of writing, I could see for the first time in black and white with a little bit of distance, <gasps> I have complex PTSD. I could see it as a clinician, right? Because I, I created enough distance between me and it that I could finally see it. And, um, You know, like I talk about in the book, I had asked for a lot of help in a lot of different ways, including graduate school, but therapy and all these things for years and years. And nothing else had given me that clarity, that language, that context, that framework. Um, And so if that's what I had to do to get it, oh, I would do it. I would do it all over again.
0: What type of response did you think you would get? versus what you got once you published it?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting because I, as you mentioned, I had published another book over 10 or 11 years ago now. And I thought I was one and done. I'm never going to write again. But that was with a traditional publisher, Hazelden. I think they're the maybe still the largest publisher of anything related to addiction. Um, And So I thought once I realized I did want to publish this memoir, that it would kind of be as simple as that was, like go to a publisher or find an agent. And it was not like that. I knocked on so many doors, I can't even tell you, to the point where I'm like shaking my fist at the universe going, if you don't (laughs) want me to do this, then take away this like obsessive desire that I have to do it because I got so many no's. I got all no's. That's what it was. And early on, I was like, I will never self-publish. Like It felt disgusting to me. It felt like not only am I writing a memoir, which, oh my word, but now I'm going to self-publish it. It was just too, like, it just felt gross. But along the way, I saw How, just like I had done in so many other aspects of my life, I was handing my worth, my power over to somebody else. And in this case, it was an agent or a publisher. Do you think my story's worthy? Do you think I'm worthy? And when I realized that's what I was doing, suddenly it was like, I'm not going to wait for anybody else to tell me that this story is valid because I knew in my heart of hearts, and that was a part of the calling that. I knew that people could potentially see themselves. And if even just a handful of people did, it was enough. And that I deserved, even if nobody read it, to share my story, to say, I matter, this matters. And so um, after all those no's and all that shame and feeling like, oh, I'm not good enough, you know, I went and self-published. And then my fear was <laughs> the original title of the book was maybe it's not that bad. Hmm. Because I think that's what a lot of us end up feeling about childhood traumas. We go, mm, wasn't that bad, right? And so that was my fear when I published. I was like, I was waiting for the backlash of... <laughs> You think that's trauma? Like I was waiting for the shaming and the belittling and the, the takedown, you know? And, um, I, you know, the book's been out for 10 months now, I think it came out in September. Um, at least to my knowledge, not one person, uh, has had that experience of like, (laughs) she thought that was worth writing about, you know? Um, so that didn't happen. My greatest fear Uh, What did happen and shocked me was how many people have reached out or written reviews and said, you're telling my story. Because I also believed like the specifics of my story were so specific. I thought, well, maybe people aren't really going to relate to this. But what they say time and time again is that even if the specifics are different, the feelings the way you held that pain, what it did to you and where you went with it, how it stayed with you, how it informed the next chapters of your life. It's like, it's universal. It feels like a blueprint. And so it's in the specifics of telling my story that other people are getting their own specifics back and, and in, in context in a way that, I mean, I'm just blown away at how it works it it was my greatest hope um and it seems to be the case that that people are seeing themselves in my story in a way that they're not accustomed to seeing right like um, there's been a lot of maybe trauma memoirs that we don't necessarily call trauma memoirs but i'm calling this a trauma memoir and i'm defining trauma and i'm putting it in context because i am a clinical psychologist in a way that i think carries some weight for folks too that um that matters and i'm so glad i did it i'm so glad i said it was a story worth telling that people are reading it makes me emotional like all these strangers are reading it and being moved and then being moved to reach back out to me like you and share uh what it's done for them like It's almost too big to sort of articulate actually.
0: Well, I'm glad that you did it. And I think that for you to get the response that, that you got, even having to self-publish it's probably one of the, the most rewarding things that you could have done for yourself and for others.
1: Yeah. Yeah, certainly for me. I mean, now I'm, it's a badge of honor that I self published. It's crazy that I went from one end of the spectrum where that would, it seems so shameful. Mm. I'm like, how can I hide it and like not make that a thing? And now I'm like, I published it myself. I, you know, <laughs> I found the graphic designer and I figured out exactly what I wanted on the cover and I chose every single word and I hired the editor. I didn't have anybody else telling me like, oh, no, 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 for it to be marketable. You know, you got to you got to do it this way. And that was a lot of the feedback I got early on, too, is a lot of people were saying, well, you got to choose. Is it a self-help book or is it a memoir? Is it clinical or is it this? And I'm like, well, it's actually a little bit of both. <laughs> and uh that also it's like, well, but we don't know how to really like position that. And you know what? People don't need it in a particular position. Um, They. Are really responding to that, that it is a memoir. It's completely a traditional memoir. But I also have this big fat glossary of terms in the back that puts my story into context in a way that I think I I needed. And again, if I needed it, and my whole life has been devoted to this kind of material, I want to give that to folks so that they're not walking around like I did for decades like what is wrong with me? I am fundamentally broken and feeling like no matter what I do and try nothing fixes it. Living in that kind of a complex trauma prison is so brutal. And I I do believe that that sharing our stories can help us to break out of that because then I go Oh, maybe I'm, maybe it's not just me. Maybe I'm not completely broken. Maybe there's a way out. And um, now I went off on some tangent. I don't even know what you said, but.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, you're good.
1: <laughs> it's my long-winded um, response.
0: <laughs> well, thank you for doing the work to put the book out, to self-publish it and and to tell your story mm-hmm. unapologetically and blazing a trail for maybe other people who want to self-publish, but who are scared.
1: I hope so. I love that. Yeah, I hope so. Or maybe they start a podcast.
0: <laughs> maybe. <laughs> um so in the book you talk you talk a lot about your relationship with your stepfather Randy and for those who haven't read the book and who hopefully will um would you mind sharing just a few of your experiences with him so that if someone is listening and and they have similar experiences they may be able to relate? And understand that they experience trauma and complex trauma as well
1: mm-hmm. I mean yeah it's that's a big question. It feels hard to kind of reduce it down, but um the buzzwords about my stepdad are uh active alcoholic um, narcissist um, he was a bully a liar, compulsive liar, manipulator, master manipulator. I even used that language, I think, as a child. I was like, he's a master manipulator. And it always felt to me like, to some extent, he had most people around us fooled, including my mom. And I was like, why don't people see it, <laughs> you know? Um, and and I became this detective. I became, like, always wanting to know, like, what's going on behind the scenes Because I knew there was a lot of stuff and it wasn't good. And I would get little hints of that little. um, One story I tell in the book is getting a phone call one night, someone asking for Ben Weber is Ben Weber there. I'm like, you have the wrong number. And they finally say, how about Randy? Is he there? And I was like, no, he's not here right now. It was so weird. And they said, well, ask him about Ben Weber. This random phone call feels like a prank phone call. You know, it's so strange. And I asked them about it the next day. Someone called Who's this Ben Weber person. And I just get this story as though it's like no big deal. Like he's telling me he went to a baseball game last week. He's like, oh, yeah, that's when I was on the lam with my son when he abducted his child and lived under an assumed name in another state for years. Like, you know, so. Things like that would kind of drop in where you're like, well, that's horrific and wrong. But again, it's sort of like it's being talked about like, well, yeah, I'm kind of sort of a hero. Look what a great dad I am. And and my mom seems totally unfazed. And um, so there was just a lot of. Feeling unsafe. Uh, feeling the instability, particularly if anyone grew up in an alcoholic home, you know, one minute the mood is like really light and you're listening to music and the next minute you hear them coming down the driveway at night. And all of us kids are running to our rooms, quite literally turning off the TV, running to our rooms and you're just waiting to see what the mood is going to be, you know, so, uh, harsh rules for no reason, no real parenting, no real like, oh, look at you. What are you learning in school today? You know, it was just like, you better get it. You better get it right the first time. If you get it wrong, there's steep punishments. So it's a combination of all of these things, um, including what I later was able to put into context that he was grooming me, Um, grooming me to be another young girl in a line of young girls that he had groomed throughout his lifetime. And I was going to be another part of that um, pattern, and so I'm navigating that. Like, well, this doesn't feel right, and ooh, that's wrong, and um, yeah, it wasn't a ch- it wasn't a childhood. It was me being hyper vigilant from as long as I can remember, trying to figure out what is going on, how do I keep myself safe, um, and at the same time, because like any child in an unsafe situation. We can't really make our caregivers bad completely because we need them to survive, right? Like, as human beings, we're one of the few species that we need our caregivers for a very long time, like a couple of decades. And so we're wired to lean into that relationship for survival. So there's a tendency in unsafe, abusive situations that the child at least partially makes it their fault because there's power in that like oh well if it's me i can fix it mm-hmm. and because i need you to survive so i cannot see you as wholly unsafe you just cannot you have to be looking for like where there's attachment where there's safety um because that's how we survive so just yeah it, that was the landscape
0: what role did your mom play in protecting you um as far as your relationship with Randy and and what things did she do or or what things didn't she do that affected you
1: You know, I think um the minute that he came in our lives in a way that I knew he and my mom were going to be together, my mom stopped existing as a whole person in the world. I feel like I literally watched her vanish and become this sort of puppet. And so she didn't protect me. She couldn't um she was too codependent, what I now know as the fawning trauma response. I think she was deeply in it. She was deeply dissociated. She was in her own addiction. Uh, she was not available for herself, much less her kids. So even when I came knocking hard to say, something is going on, I need your help. All she could do was say, I think you're lying. You know, that was basically her response is that she couldn't show up for me. And in fact, You know, for many years and all the therapist couches that I sat on and would talk about these things, I never forgot about any of this. I always knew it was wrong. It was just that nobody put it in the context of trauma and and that. I really believed like I think a lot of people believe, well, if I tell the story enough and I figure it out, like the logic of it will remove the way that it was still living and breathing in my body. And it never did. So that was so infuriating. And also why I thought I was so broken, because here I'm understanding so much and it didn't save me from more abusive relationships myself or, you know, my low self-esteem and my anxiety and my hypervigilance. But for many, many years, all I could really point to as the obvious sort of villain was my stepdad. It was like so clear. What I couldn't see for a very, very long time was that I always knew he was the villain. I knew he was the bully the minute he came into our lives. So even though what he did and how he behaved was so deeply destructive, it wasn't as destructive as my mom turning her back because i really did think well she's gonna she's gonna rally at some point she's gonna see that this is she's gonna come to my age she's she's gonna wake up she's gonna wake up and in fact maybe it's my job to help her do it and here i am 48 years old hasn't happened right but i was living my life as though that was the answer that was my salvation if my mom just finally believes me. So when my stepdad died, which was one of the things that started the writing, and it felt really clear to me like, oh, even when he's gone, she's still never going to own up to what happened. Um, It kind of broke this like toxic hope handcuffs that I had. on my life and my own well-being, I was like, I can't keep waiting for someone who never saw me then to see me now. And I have to see me. I have to believe me. I have to validate me. And I think that's why the writing was so powerful because it was such a big act of that. Like I see it. Yes, this happened. Oh my gosh. It hung right next to this. That happened too. Whoa. Like Then as a psychologist, trauma responses, all of these things living in me and how they lived out in the world, um, and to the point we already made, to then say, I believe me, I see this, this is my story, I'm going to self-publish it. I'm not waiting for anybody else, not my mom, not my stepdad, not a publisher, an agent, whatever, to make this real. And it's kind of amazing that we have the power to do that ourselves. I sort of love that. I also love that I didn't set out to write this book. That it I feel like it's such an example of how the healing wants to happen. I think the healing wants to happen. And here I was striving so hard in this direction, like I'll become a therapist and I'll help other people and I'll become a trauma therapist and I'll do this, that, and the other thing. Write books. I'll become a mom. And it wasn't getting to the root. And then this thing comes out of what feels like left field. I'm like, well, I'm not going to write a book. Well, I've my own story. Like, what is this? But the healing wanted to happen. And it, in a way, knew what it needed. And it just kept pulling me, kept pulling me and pulling me. And I believe that that can be true for all of us. Like the calling will look different. But can we be curious about what that might be? If we get those nudges of like oh maybe you should do this thing or try that thing or see how that feels I think the healing wants to happen our bodies do not want to keep storing this trauma for one more day I believe that
0: I believe it too and and I I understand and relate to what you said that you believe the healing wants to happen and that you know mm-hmm. it I, I felt like my body was ready, with or without me. I had to catch up at a certain point and be like, "Oh, this is what we're doing. Okay, mm. I'll get on board." Yeah, you know,
1: exactly. Um, <laughs> this is what we're doing. Yes,
0: right. So I I understand that I I'm sorry that you had to experience not being able to to be believed by your mom and that um, mm. she was not able to see you or. Or you know she was dealing with her own trauma, um, which a lot of a lot of our parents are who who had rough upbringings or who were in narcissistic relationships they they may not know how to see things outside of what they're they're able to, which you know it yeah. it, it makes it difficult not to be able to place blame and to see them for who they are and have compassion all in one um so it, it's it, so it hard. It's
1: so tricky. But I think what I finally came to is that, you know, choosing myself in this way was the last house on the block because I literally had tried everything else. So that's mm-hmm. one thing. And the second thing I realized is that as long as I was privileging everyone else's pain over my own, it's like, oh, but I can have compassion and empathy and Maybe they don't have access to the same kind of information that I haven't I can come up with 8 million reasons why someone's hurting me. <laughs> and I had to stop doing that. I had to stop privileging anyone else's pain over my own. And that's not mean, right? It felt mean. It felt really mean. It felt so harsh. Like, who am I? But it's like, well, who am I? I'm a person too. And I matter. And as long as I'm saying, I'm going to privilege your needs over my own, I'm in my own way. I'm the problem. Right. So in a way, it's about taking real personal responsibility and going, okay, I've got to stop waiting for someone else to save me, rescue me, validate it, make me okay, and go, it's up to me oh man, well then I better start learning what is a healthy boundary and how do I apply it? What does that look like? And and it's hard, you know? I've said in a lot of reels on Instagram, the healing of trauma can hurt a lot worse than the original wounds because we're having to feel it and own it and metabolize it and set these boundaries and face some truths that a lot of us have been running from for a long time. And it's not easy but I still feel like it is 100% worth it. And I say this all the time, not just for me, but for my son. Because I'm very aware of the generational trauma being passed down, not just in my long line of alcoholism and everything else, but with the clients that I've worked with over the years, that this is how it happens, right? Is that we just show up with what we know and we repeat what they did, even when, when we don't want to. and I'm far, far, far from a perfect mom. I never will be. But to the degree that I can do my work, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Because I believe that's what it means to be a parent, to choose to be a parent. And I chose it consciously. And so I take it very seriously.
0: I bet you do. And I I think that you, along with others that are, are doing the work and conscious of it, because of their childhood experiences, the effort to be a better parent is, is there and you, you choose to show up differently to change the things that you had to experience that you don't want to be passed on to another generation.
1: That's right. Yep. It's a huge part of it. There's no mini me. There's no, it's not all smiles and rainbows. It's like, oh, this is my actual child. How do I honor Uh, him? uh, Not who do I want him to be? And how do I want him to make me feel? And what did I want motherhood to look like? I think there's a lot of idealization around parenting and that they're just going to do what I say and I'm going to teach him respect and they're going to toe the line. And it's like, man, it is not like that. (laughs) You know,
0: Mm -mm. Yeah, it's not. It's not at all. I mean, one of one of my childhood dreams was to be an amazing father, and I always remember saying to myself, mm-hmm. "I'm going to make sure that when I'm a father, that I do this and I do that, and you know, I I don't have to pass on the things that I dealt with." And that was something that, that I really wanted to 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 do and be. Um, but But now I look back and I'm able to see my father for who he was and why he was. And even doing that allows me to honor him and honor myself and then honor my son as well. So I I think doing the work and being aware, it, it almost is like, you know, not that trauma is good in any way, but when you can realize it for what it is and work through it. And process it, mm. it does give you something on the on the other side of it,
1: hundred percent, yeah, I hate the idea that we need trauma to grow as people, like, oh, I'm so glad that happened to you because you wouldn't be who you are on the other side. I'm a little bit like, uh oh, no thanks, but to your point, <laughs> um is cycle breaking powerful? Yes, it is, <laughs> yes, it is,
0: mm-hmm. for sure. Um, okay. So something I wanted to ask you once, once you were able to move away, um, were you able to go on in the world and become a, a a healthy functioning member of society or did the things that you had to endure affect you in the sense that you, you kind of weren't able to, to get yourself together?
1: I think it's, uh, both. I think the answer is both. Did I go and move away and pursue my dreams and uh, cobble together a life and then get clean and sober and go back to school? And, you know, on the outside, I think it looked like um, I was that, you know, resilient kid that I think we attribute to people all the time, like, oh, look at you, right? But on the inside, particularly in my romantic relationships, I only was attracted to uh, unavailable, actively addicted, abusive um, people. And I and I knew that and I couldn't stop it. And that's one of the reasons I kept going to therapy. Like, why do I keep choosing the same person? Like, they don't, I don't see the red flags. It's just suddenly I'm in the same relationship with a different face. And I could not stop it if I tried. And it was maddening because I was like, I can't control my chemistry. Like, how do you figure out how to be attracted to healthy people? And again, you know, what we know now about trauma, maybe we didn't know then, but this idea that, like, well, That's called trauma reenactment, right? Like I was looking for the magical do-over of choosing the available abusive person who was finally going to see me and go, I didn't realize how amazing you are. Of course, I'm going to quit using and stop cheating and stop lying and become the person you want me to be, right? This like deeply magical thinking um, do-over. But it was also that that's what my nervous system, it's the only thing I knew you know, we talk about what's familiar. It's the only thing I knew. I lived and breathed and grew up uh, in an environment where my strongest skill set was my ability to be in an active chronic trauma response all the time. Who do you need me to be, right? I'm never really on sure footing. I have to make sure you're okay. And if you're okay, then maybe I'll be okay. I didn't have the skills. I didn't have the lens. I had nothing that would enable me to feel safe and present in my own skin, which would then allow me to be attracted to someone who was the same. Um, So my relationships were a mess, which then my self-esteem was a mess, uh, how I thought about myself. Every time I did something that was an accomplishment, it was like well, that was a fluke, or I only got that because X, Y, and Z, a constantly feeling like if anybody really knew what I was like on the inside, they would know that I don't belong here. Um, I was a, I was a mess, uh, constantly hypervigilant, full of anxiety, social anxiety, don't know how to be in the world. But I had this mask, enough of a mask that I think a lot of people would have been like, she's totally fine, you know, but I wasn't. And I think that's another piece about the book that's maybe helpful is I'm sort of chronicling what's happening on the outside, but showing what was happening on the inside. And it's those inside bits that I think people really relate to. Um, And quite frankly, those are the symptoms of complex trauma, right? Like dysfunctional relationships and low self-esteem and and anxiety and hypervigilance and all these things. So uh, I didn't know that's what it was, I just thought it was me. I just thought it was me. And if I was trying so hard and so actively to get over this stuff and it still wasn't working, then the shame, the shame. I was so ashamed that any time I thought someone might actually be seeing the real me, I would turn bright red. I would start profusely sweating. It was horrifying. I mean, I was so unsafe in my own skin. And if you saw me, it was it was over you know and so that's kind of the other amazing thing it's like that now i'm t- telling the truth like the real truth and how i feel about it and i'm doing it so sort of loud and proud like i think i really want people to know it didn't start like this you know mm. i was mortified just to be a person in the world um never deserving never belonging anywhere and i don't I don't feel that way now. I don't feel that way now. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. I don't even care what you ask me. I'm an open book. Ask me whatever you want. Maybe I won't quite be as articulate as I'd like to be, but I don't feel shame for that. I don't feel like I did it wrong. I am wrong. I am bad. I don't feel that way. That feels like a miracle. It's so big.
0: Goosebumps. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you so much. Yeah, um, it's the truth. Yeah, and and I think that is what we need to get comfortable being okay talking about is is the truth, our truth, and and sharing our story unapologetically and and building up the mm. tolerance to all the things that happen. Um as you start to do that, because like you said now, you don't have those same you know you, you, they may the triggers may be there, but your your response to them isn't the same as they yeah. were in the past, and being able to to, to right. tell that is what gives the relatability like you said, so thank you for the book yes thank you for sharing uh-huh. the way you're sharing and thank you for uh-huh. what you do and how you do it so, so much.
1: Thank you for receiving it. Yeah. Thank
0: you. (laughs) So speaking about trauma, um, what was it that changed for you after you attended the training with Dr. Bessel van der Kolk?
1: Oh gosh. Yeah. That was early on. I was working at a treatment center out here in LA and he came to do an in service training. I didn't know who he was, that he was like, you know, the godfather of, of trauma. (laughs) And, you know, it was an interesting time, actually, I think even in the field, but I didn't know that then. I was like a green clinician, just like wanting to fit in and be like, I got a job. Yeah, I'm meant to be here, you know. Meanwhile, sort of hiding that internal, um, I don't belong here uh, as hard as I could. But it was an interesting time in the field where I think we were starting to really move away from looking at trauma as we had historically, like. It's a car crash. It's a tornado. It's a, a veteran from war. It's only related to life, truly life threatening incidents. And we were moving more towards what we now know as developmental trauma or complex trauma, which is a series of events over time that by themselves they might not be life threatening. By themselves they might not appear to have such an impact. But living in that chronic, pervasive abuse neglect and it's not just physical abuse it's emotional abuse these things has the same impact on our nervous system as these traditional notions of trauma in fact if you look at the criteria for PTSD and you look at the criteria for complex PTSD it's the same except complex PTSD has an extra layer of symptoms that you don't necessarily see related to PTSD, which are the relational symptoms, the symptoms that say, I'm a bad person. Uh, I'm seeking dysfunctional relationships, all that kind of stuff. So, But anyway, I knew none of that at the time. And so Dr. Vander Kolk is talking about a client of his who has relational trauma, developmental trauma. And I'm sitting in this room wanting to shrink and disappear because he's telling my story. But he's talking about it like it's trauma. I'm like, what are you talking? He's talking about it like it's PTSD. I'm like, what are... It was so disorienting and so shameful because I felt like I cannot be that client because I'm here as a therapist trying to help people like that client so... And the way he was talking about this person was with so much compassion and care and understanding and validation, all things that I had never received for a story that was almost identical. So it was almost like, well, that also can't be me because no one responded to me in that way. So this is even more shameful. It's all mine to hold. And I remember I went to the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the sort of Bible of, of diagnoses in the United States. And I looked at PTSD and that criteria that was like, you know, must be life-threatening or however it was languaged. I carried even more shame. Like, how dare you think that you could identify with that person that he was talking about? So in a way, it was like, A door opened for me to see myself in a way that was accurate, but it slammed shut so hard at the same time because it was like, you are not allowed to use that language. Like you should be ashamed of yourself is how it felt. And I didn't return to that understanding, even though I ended up going to all these trauma trainings years later. And uh, I, I could not return to thinking about my story in that way until I started writing it. And I forget when that when that training was with Bessel Vanderbilt. I think it was the early 2000s, right? It was a long time, a long time.
0: I remember reading that in the book and thinking to myself that that may have been a turning point or like a a, a realization for you, um, but also now you're saying that you there was so much shame associated with it that it was kind of a toss up so.
1: It was both. I think it planted a little seed, but then I was like bury it. Bury it.
0: <laughs> bury yeah.
1: it deep. Yeah.
0: How can complex trauma look for narcissistic abuse survivors? Like what are some symptoms?
1: I mean, I think that the self-gaslighting piece is is a biggie. Is that we've made it all our fault. We've minimized. We've we've Know, brought all our compassion and empathy, and we just are giving of ourselves and giving of ourselves and giving of ourselves, um, to where the blinders are on. You know, it's so hard to see, and and um, I I love Dr. Romani's work. If people are curious about narcissism or narcissistic abuse. She's a clinical psychologist here in LA and she's a force and she puts out so many amazing free resources for people, her YouTube channel, her Instagram, all of that, her writing. Um, And I would say, if you're curious, go take a listen, go read some of, of her stuff about like, oh, does any of that sort of seem familiar? I just I've learned so much from her in my own process where my eyes are suddenly like I'm a deer in headlights. I'm like, Oh, you know, that's what that was. Oh, that's coercive control. Oh yeah. That happened to me. Oh, the silent treatment. Yes. Um, I think there's this awakening. (laughs) It's often this like awakening where the survivor, just like myself at my own computer, kind of like figuring it out and then Googling, like, narcissism. You know, so many of us are doing that. It's um, And it's a shame, actually, because I think a lot of clinicians don't understand, really don't understand narcissism. They don't understand narcissistic abuse. So someone who's maybe being abused comes to their therapist couch and they're like, my relationship, it's just not really working and it's not really satisfying. And they feel really earnest and they want it to work. And they probably deep down want it to be their fault so they can fix it. And I think therapists often collude with that. And because so many narcissists are also really high functioning and charming and convincing and have this other side to them, it's a really compelling fix to be like, Oh, honey, maybe it's just you. Have you tried harder? You know, which perpetuates the like, Oh, it's me. And, um, it's so hard to get out of. Um, so I think the more that we can understand. Uh, and like I said, turn to Ramani stuff, her podcast. Um, I love some of the things that she says, like how the benefit of the doubt for her is like some of the, the most dangerous phrase, right? Cause that's what we do. We just keep giving him the benefit of the doubt. And, uh, you know, this things like understanding things like trauma bonding where you go, but he's so amazing the rest of the time. And he's so loving and he knows me better than I love myself. It's like, Well, that's because that's the recipe for trauma bonding, right? It's intermittent reinforcement. No one's really bad all the time. There's got to be a reason to pull you back in. And that hook is neurochemically powerful. Um, So to learn about things like that and be curious, I think can start to kind of loosen up the, the hold that it has on you. I think I said to her on her podcast gaslighting is effective it's really effective when someone goes no and you have this good heart and you like you're not a, a compulsive liar and you have empathy it's really hard to imagine that someone is being so manipulative and not taking any responsibility and making it all your fault and going no i didn't do that that was totally you like you can't even wrap your brain around it um so It's hard to paint a picture. Um, It's why it took me so many years, too, to kind of like write all these things and start to go. That's what that was. That's what that was. Because you're just in it. Hmm. And you don't know any different. But someone who's abusive. A third of the time. (laughs) Is an abusive person. The other two-thirds or whatever the equation is doesn't make up for abuse and i think that's hard that's a hard pill because we want to believe yeah. that they're gonna finally one day be a hundred percent the good person that i get to see some of the time and that's if you know anyone if you know let me know <laughs> let me know <laughs> if you've encountered that i never have
0: Mm-mm. I think we almost dangle the carrot in front of ourselves when when we have that type of thinking.
1: Yes, we do. It's that's the toxic hope. That's the benefit of the doubt. It's like, we believe that one day it's all going to change. And that's what I mean. It's like, it's not all going to change one day unless I decide that I'm going to change my relationship to this thing. And I get it. Nobody wants that to be the answer. I didn't. Man. I didn't even think it could be. I truly thought that because it was relational trauma, that I needed the other people involved to participate in a way that would release me. It wasn't a conscious I couldn't have said it that way, but I believed it. It was shocking. To realize I didn't have to wait for them, I can. You mean I can just extract myself from from all of this? Um, Shocking.
0: You spoke about the nervous system a little bit earlier, and I wanted to ask: What can childhood trauma do to our body? How does it affect our body? Is there something that we we can just you know, say, like you mentioned, oh, well, I, you know, maybe, you, well, well, that's another question I'm going to get to later, but what does, what does trauma do to our bodies?
1: Well, trauma basically is something that overwhelms the nervous system. And then this more primitive part of our brain and our bodies takes over. It's never a conscious choice. And we move into fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. And so if you're curious about this stuff, particularly what it looks like for complex trauma survivors, again, developmental trauma, childhood trauma, relational trauma, these are all kind of synonymous. I think Pete Walker, uh, his work on this subject, I mean, it's amazing. And he has a lot of free stuff on his website and great books, I think, from Surviving to Thriving, Complex PTSD um, is his best known. And what happens is if you if your body's under threat, like it, the body will always privilege safety and survival over everything else. Um, and so if you're constantly feeling unsafe, like the, one of the most powerful protectors it is, is as a child is dissociation. We just leave our body. We can't handle it. It's too overwhelming. Um, it's a tool that you can do when you're teeny tiny, right? It's just like, I'm out of here. And it's also why a lot of childhood trauma survivors don't have a lot of memories about what happened because they weren't in their bodies to be able to make those memories. Um, so that's an aspect of the freeze response. Uh, what I often did as well was, um, the fawn response, which is like, okay, I'm going to intuit what you need me who do I need to be? I'm going to, constantly be orienting to the other person to see what I need to do. This isn't normal, right? This isn't healthy. This doesn't allow me an opportunity to have like solid attachments with other human beings because in a way I don't exist in this equation. I'm always putting the other person first. So I lived in a chronic fawn response, but I didn't know that. Um, I just thought, you know, it can look just like altruism and being kind. And I think about other people, but it wasn't a choice. It wasn't like I was choosing to go, oh, yeah, you know, I'm going to show up for them and prioritize them. I just had to do it all the time. You know, the flight response can be like, psh, I'm out of here. Like you think about the animal kingdom of a, an animal who's spooked and he's like, psh, you know, but it's also like staying in perpetual motion. I'm going to go finish this degree and then I'm going to go get a master's degree. Well, that's not enough. I need to get, you know, the perfectionism, the go, 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 the obsessive compulsive, right? My addiction, um, relationship to drugs and alcohol. I was in a chronic trauma response in so many ways and didn't know that's what it was. And now it's amazing. You know, to some extent, I think also this is just what it, looks like maybe to be in your forties for people that don't necessarily have a lot of trauma. They're sort of like, Oh, I, I get to be me. I, you know, I don't have to keep apologizing and living according to society's norms or whatever it is. But for me, I feel a deeper level of like I am just coming into myself for the first time in my life and discovering who I really am without all of that. And again, it wasn't a choice. It's just been this process through the healing that the tra- I'm I'm literally witnessing the trauma responses receding. To where like back in the day, if you called me, if you left a message, I had to immediately listen and immediately call you back. Like I remember when I started noticing, like, oh, I'm still listening to the message right away, but. I almost couldn't call people back right away. It was like I was waiting longer and longer, which felt scary because my threat response was like, you need to attend to that relationship, you know. Then I wasn't even listening to messages the second that I got them. I was waiting until maybe it was like a good time for me. And it sounds so silly, but it's not because it was this process of like finding a new level of safety in my life and in my own skin where it's not like I have to be walking a tightrope all the time. It was like, no, there's a little more flexibility and let's feel that out, you know, and um, you just multiply that times a million and all these other facets of my life where suddenly I I have more choice. I have more agency. My body's not reflexively doing something for me that I never even had to think about. I'm suddenly like, oh, how do I want to participate in this thing? And it just it's night and day, you know, uh, over time. But it's it's been a process for sure. It's an ongoing process. I, I don't think I'll ever be done.
0: How can trauma set the stage for codependency?
1: Well, I mean, when you're talking about relational trauma. Well, let me say this. I've never loved the word codependency. And maybe it's because I come from the addiction framework where codependency originated. And I feel like it's always had this bit of a stigmatized, like, don't be codependent. Like, just, you know, focus on your own life. Like, it felt like even the word itself means like, I'm a loser and I'm ashamed and I'm a doormat. And so because of that, I could never see myself as codependent. But now that I see my life through the lens of trauma, the fawning trauma response, which Pete Walker coined that term, basically is codependency. But because it's seen through the lens of trauma, I don't have to feel so gross and ashamed and it makes more sense to me. Um So a lot of childhood trauma survivors in particular come by fawning really honestly because. It literally was survival. Um, so I'd say it's it's very common. It's very common, and I understand why. And it's not something we have to feel ashamed of.
0: Now, something that um, people who maybe avoid healing or dealing with their trauma do, and this is what I mentioned earlier we were get into, is um to spiritually bypass and, and you have a book about that. Mm. So, so I wanted to ask you what does it mean to spiritually bypass and, and what can it look like?
1: Yeah, I think yeah, my first book was on spiritual bypassing and it's a, it was coined by John Wellwood, who is also a therapist but um a uh, a Buddhist therapist. And he saw that a lot of these Western practitioners were approaching these Eastern ideas with this sort of perfectionism. And like, so if I meditate long enough, like, why aren't I levitating all the time? You know, and he's like, um, because that's not the point. But we were like using it as this way to kind of control and manage outcomes and things. And um, I just love it as as a name to name that thing that I think we can see in lots of different <laughs> areas of life and um, ideologies and things. But I saw it in sobriety. Uh, I think I was nearing 10 years sober and I could see how it's like, oh, I'm feeling these feelings. These feelings are coming up. And it would be like, have you prayed about it? And I was like, well, yeah, maybe. But like, uh, am I just, suppo-? it felt like I was being asked to intentionally almost spiritually bypass, even though that's not what we were talking about. And it made sense. Right. So you bring all these recovering addicts and alcoholics together whose first choice is to be like, "Uh, I want to check out. (laughs) I don't want to feel these feelings. And then you give them a more palatable uh, solution to drugs and alcohol. It's not I'm not, you know, getting high or whatever, but I'm just like praying about it and being of service and and meditating and whatever it is. And I'm not saying that those aren't good things. I think that they're wonderful things. I think spiritual practice can be super helpful and grounding and enriching for people. But when we use it as a panacea, when we use it to try to override the human condition, uh, that's a problem. That's a problem. And so, yeah, I did my my dissertation actually research on spiritual bypass and twelve step recovery of people that had long term recovery and in a way i almost you know it was it really was sort of an introduction to what letter later became my memoir 15 years or so later um that i was curious i was looking at like what's getting in my way like why aren't i feeling better why i've done the steps eight million times i have a spiritual practice why am i still so riddled you know Um, I was seeking, I was seeking a deeper solution. I was looking for the roots. And I think that was a helpful endeavor. And I'm glad that I named it and, um, that now people know what that is. People didn't really, when I wrote, uh, the book about it. Um, and, I think we're constantly looking for ways to avoid ourselves and spirituality looks a lot better than a lot of the other things that we can use, right? To my earlier point. So again, it makes perfect sense to me, but it's like anything, you know, exercise is great unless you're over exercising, unless you're, you know, anorexically sort of exercising anything to excess, um, tends to not, not be that helpful. So. We got to be a whole person. I have not found anything that allows me to truly transcend the human condition, not degrees, not spiritual practice, not, you know, achieving whatever wrongs on the ladder. I always go, I'm still here. I'm still me. I'm still a person. And I, and now that's the greatest answer that I'm never going to figure out how to transcend who I am. Cause now I get to actually be that person. And I'm like, I'm starting to like me. I'm starting to feel comfortable with me. I'm glad I didn't figure that out.
0: I remember you you had a post on spiritual bypassing and I think that may have been one of your your very first posts that I saw that made me like mm. really dig into your content and um you know you talked about how you're not willing to overlook your lived experience anymore for anything. And I, and it hit me so hard because, you know, I know that abuse at times can be overlooked because of spirituality or what we're supposed to do as Christians yeah. or or whatever, um, you know, faith that you are. and And when, mm-hmm. when you said that, it just basically like took me down a, a journey of all the times to where I felt like I had been um invalidated because things were supposed to be a certain way based on spirituality. You know? And and I related so much to that idea post. That
1: forgiveness. Yes. I think it's used as a weapon when spirituality is weaponized. Oh, my word. It's like, well, you should be more forgiving and you should be more spiritual. And that's your parent. That's whatever. And it's like, no, 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 no. No, that is not the answer to abuse, is to figure out how to tolerate it through a spiritual mm. lens. Oh, my gosh. And no one would ever say that directly, but that's exactly what they're saying.
0: Right. That's what I was going to ask were next. More is spiritual. How can. I was going to ask next, how can forgiveness, spiritual bypassing and abuse sometimes be linked?
1: There you go. Yeah, when it's used as a weapon and and any trauma survivor will tell you that that's how it feels. <laughs> it mm-hmm. Never does it feel like, oh, thank you for that helpful tool. It's completely solved my relationships to others and myself and I feel so much better. No, it's like, oh, so it's still my fault. Mm-hmm. They are abusing me, but it's my problem to fix. And I have to do it by getting even smaller, you know? No. Mm
0: -mm. Yeah, you said that. Okay. Um, So this is me asking you to call on uh, the the person that you become when you content create. And um, I know that you have a beautiful voice And that now that you know that it's yours and can't ever be taken away from you, you sing your song so beautifully, uh, literally and figuratively. I want to take you back to that moment in the school auditorium where there was no audience and you heard your voice clearer and louder than you ever had before. What song did you sing and would you be willing to share a verse to inspire anyone who listens to this to understand that they also have a voice and are worthy of being seen and heard?
1: Oh my gosh. I will not be singing on this podcast. I love that you're asking. I can't do it. But that day that I was on a empty stage in an empty auditorium and I had a mic kind of similar to this fancy mic maybe and I could hear my own voice and um I mean I'll never forget that memory. Um it was amazing grace that I was singing. And um one thing I say in the book, and it feels maybe in answer to your question. Being a singer, and particularly being a singer who, even though I was young and I was sort of small, like I'm five foot two and I'm white and all these things, I had a big, soulful voice. And I was drawn to things like gospel and blues and jazz. And it was such a gift because it enabled me to have contact with the bigness of my voice in a way that still kept me safe because it was in a song. And there was a beginning and a middle and an end. And then I could go back to being my hypervigilant self. Oh, no, no, no. You matter more than me in the rest of my life. Right and i still love singing i will from time to time do that but the biggest gift to me is that i have a voice in the rest of my life today i don't have to shrink it into the safety of a song i get to be big and bold and soulful and me in every area of my life And I do feel like we're doing that, you know, right now. And in this whole conversation, like I am singing my song. I am singing my song. And this is how I choose to sing it today.
0: That was beautiful. It was. And from the moment that I came in contact with you, you've been singing your song. And
1: Mm -hmm. to be able
0: to hear your actual voice it was even more magnificent. I was so blown away because I was like, wow, like she, she even has more to her than what I already thought was amazing. Um, so thank you for the work that you've done and for sharing it and giving others a bridge to, to get to healing and tools on how to recognize things and to see that you know they can be a, a fully functional human being regardless of what they've gone through. You gave the blueprint. I did.
1: Well, it's my greatest honor and gift to get to do this. And also I get to keep healing along the way. That's the other gift because I'll find more little nuances to my voice that I didn't know were there before. And I look under this rock and I hadn't had that experience. And I continue to get to flush, like this thing, this this personhood, um, being a real whole person in the world who's not just tethered to trauma as I share it, like, uh, and that too, it's like, really, like I get to keep learning and, and healing and growing. And yeah, the fact that that helps other people, it's amazing. So thanks for, thanks for being you and your engagement with, with everything I put out there and doing what you're doing now and having your own platform to bring more voices to more people like that to me is just the best
0: thank you i appreciate that i'm trying i really am so last question if you could use your platform to encourage anyone who might be struggling uh with feeling comfortable talking to someone about their big feelings or emotions or has suffered narcissistic abuse what would you say and what advice would you give to them
1: whoo man that's a big question Some of the things that are coming to my mind, they might not be the perfect answers, but I think there's a self-trust that we have to have. And even if it's this big in the beginning where you're like, I don't want anyone to see that I'm like Googling narcissism, trust yourself. Mm. There's a reason that you're looking that up, right? And if some of it lands and you go, oh, oh, and you're the deer in headlights like I was with, like, trust that. It's not made up. You're not being dramatic. You're not making things up you're not a liar you're not too sensitive there's a reason that you're having those sort of hits and those curiosities and um i think a big part of this process really is about taking that teeny tiny kernel of self trust and just growing it and growing it and growing it and um trust that process trust that you're worth it even when you don't feel like it I had to deal with that so much in the writing in particular. I would just be hit with these bouts of deep shame. My husband saw me go through this like cyclically over and over and over. I'd go from being like, yes, this is important and I'm going to do this and I'm trusting my process and I'm going to shout it from the rooftops. And then maybe I would query another agent and they would say no, or I would be stuck in something or just whatever hit with shame. And I'd be like who do I think I am? This is so embarrassing. I'm, you know, I will never publish this. Like, um, and I would just go through that over and over again. And so I even had to trust that, that there were going to be times that I was like, no way, this is ridiculous. This is absurd. Who do I think I am? And then it would swing back around to like, well, maybe you could just sit down and try writing that next thing that you were wanting to write or whatever it was. And over time, There was this trajectory. And um, just to listen to those nudges, listen to the curiosity. I will say, too, to be more specific about people that are looking for support and help. I think it's deeply important that if you identify with anything that I've said today, maybe you don't have a therapist and you're looking for a therapist or even a coach, that you need to find someone who works with trauma. Because if they don't, there can be a tendency to privilege other interventions and tools and things that can make you feel like you're going somewhere, but you're not actually going anywhere at all. And I lived in that place for a really long time. And so what I say to anybody who is looking to find a therapist is ask them, uh, not even just are you trauma informed, which is good, but are you trauma trained? and What trainings, like, what does that mean? What does that mean in terms of how you work with folks? And there are a lot of different modalities in trauma and one might really resonate with you and one might not. And so I also say, trust yourself with that. If you've been trying something, you know, for maybe a while and you're like, yeah, this EMDR stuff, it's just not, I don't know. It feels too triggering or I don't feel like I'm getting anywhere. Okay, try something else. Don't feel like, okay, then I better just try harder and make myself and, you know, Um, And be collaborative with your therapist. A trauma-informed therapist is going to know that your nervous system is in the driver's seat, not their expertise of what they think you should be doing. And So there's a different way of orienting, I think, when we're working with the body to not just our rational, logical mind, which, by the way, is offline when we're traumatized. When that sort of fight, flight, and freeze reaction is happening, Everything non-essential in our bodies, uh, including like choice and, and rational, logical thought and digestion and lots of other things. They're just not available to us. So to use those things to heal when they weren't even online during the wounding, it's like, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. So make sure you're working with folks who have an understanding of, of all of this. I, I feel really strongly about that.
0: That was great advice well Ingrid Dr. Clayton. thank you so much for oh, this Ingrid. Um, <laughs> I want to give you the respect that I feel you deserve. Um, thank you for this um i I waited, but to me it was so worth it because in the process, I got to sit with uh your book, continue to you know look at your post and it just, it gave me, I feel like, the courage and the know-how to be able to not feel intimidated sitting next to you and to feel like I deserve to be here and that I was also worthy as well. Because the way you tell your story, it it gives hope and it, it gives so much more than, you know, a lot of us may think we're worthy of or what we deserve. So... I'm so grateful and honored to have had the opportunity to do this with you. And just a million thank yous.
1: Me too, Jelan. Thanks for asking and, and having the conversation. It's been such a pleasure.
0: If someone wants to find you online or on social media, where can they find you?
1: Uh, My website is my name, ingridclayton.com, and it has all my social media stuff on there. I think all my social media handles are at PhD. That's YouTube and Instagram and all that stuff. I'm not taking any new clients. I always like to say that um, because I know that some people are curious. Um, But I hope you will look for support. Uh, Like I said, trauma-informed folks that um, there's a lot of people out there doing really really amazing work so yeah
0: and then what about your books where can your books be found
1: um believing me the memoir the recent book is on amazon and the um audio book is on audible itunes and also on amazon and um Recovering Spirituality, my first book, you can also find, you might find it in bookstores. You can order it through a bookstore if they don't have it on the shelf. And um, I think you can get it from Amazon and Hazelden directly. Yeah.
0: Well, again, I want to say thank you so much. Um, thank you for your time. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you do and for the way you do it.
1: Aw, thanks, John.